Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Jay Coburn. I'm the lead producer of this show, Darts and Letters. We've just become a part of New Books Network, so we want to introduce ourselves. Fundamentally, this is a show about the politics of ideas. Another way to say that would be intellectuals. But we don't really gel with this classic idea of intellectuals being white guys at Harvard. We're more populist than that. And we have a whole segment in this episode about what we really mean by populism. This is our first episode, and we made it in 2020 in the run-up to Biden's election. We've had 60 episodes since then, and our production is tighter, and we have a much clearer idea of who we are as a show. But we wanted to start by playing you this one, because I think we have stayed pretty true to our original goal of democratizing ideas and looking for them in unusual places. We are taking a bit of a production break right now for summer, so until September, we're going to catch you up with our favourite episodes from our catalogue. Then on September 18th, we're launching the new season of Darts and Letters. Until then, we're doing a different theme each week here on New Books Network, and our theme for this week is what I just said, ideas in strange places, starting with episode one, and the owner of the Pigeon Shit Bookstore an intellectual of the street, who the show's host Gordon found selling books in downtown Toronto. Take it away, Gord. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a show about intellectuals and the work that they do. But it's not just for the Ivy crowd. It's for everybody, even people who hack darts and people who wouldn't be caught dead with a New Yorker tote bag. This is a new show, and I'm your host. So before we begin, I thought you maybe wanted to know a little bit more about me and how I got here. When I told my friends I wanted to make a show about intellectuals, they discouraged me. And for good reason, I think. Intellectual has become kind of a dirty word. People think of intellectuals as this rarefied class, a snobbish elite, just old white guys who have their heads up their ass. And to some extent, that's true. Sorry to my academic colleagues, but you just have to admit it. And in my journalistic work, I've revealed this very plain fact. Story after story has been full of intellectual elites wittingly or unwittingly harming people. Really, the broader history of the intellectual chattering class is this history. Fucked up ideas like eugenics or massive technocratic failures. Equal parts evil, equal parts utter stupidity. Think the Vietnam War, Enron, the financial crisis. Just about anything that goes spectacularly wrong There's an intellectual there somewhere. I think it's honestly an open question. Who's been worse for the world, the idiots or the intellectuals? But, you know, let's not go too far. That's kind of a defeatist attitude, baby out with the bathwater sort of thing. The problem isn't intellectuals or intellectualism per se, it's who gets to count as one. What do they do and who do they work for? I think it would be suicidal to give up on intellectuals. You know, this whole world is descending into full-scale climate apocalypse. We're going to need some new ideas, some smart policy proposals, and even more than that, we're going to need to build a new kind of world. So we better harness intellect or we ain't got a chance. 
And honestly, I'm about as old-fashioned about this as they come. Give me science, progress, reason, debate, enlightenment, thinking, whatever. I guess that's out of fashion now in certain corners of academia. But I guess I just don't care about certain corners of academia. Because if we give up on those tools, what do we even have? I think we should be celebrating intellectual life and mobilizing it for our political aims. Why does the left suck at this? Remember when we were all kind of Gramscians and we struggled for intellectual hegemony? We did metapolitics. And if you don't know Gramsci and you don't know the term, that's okay. It basically just means we tried to build alternative ideas. We then seeded the broader society with those ideas. And ultimately, our goals were to win the political, cultural, and intellectual debates. Some of us are still that way, but sort of vulgar Gramscians, because everything is just a culture war. So we've won some debates, just sometimes I think we've won the wrong ones. We made sure that prestige television was woke, but we let the entire U.S. federal judiciary get reactionary. We also won the debates on the academic conference circuit, but we didn't seem to mind who won the debates on the President's Council of Economic Advisors. So who's doing metapolitics really well right now? Who talks about intellectual and cultural hegemony? Well, it's people like Richard Spencer, honestly. The alt-right cranks quote Gramsci all the time, and the right-wing think tank people too. You want to find a group of people who love and respect the power of ideas? Don't go to the faculty lounge. Go visit the Heritage Foundation or the Federalist Society or focus on the family. They're not joking around there. It's serious. They know that they're in a battle for intellectual hegemony, and they're organized. If you look at the world right now, it seems like they're winning. But I don't want to let those people win. So yeah, this is a show about celebrating intellectualism and harnessing it to make a better world. Unabashedly so. I'm not going to walk that back even a step. But I also probably understand the word a little bit different from you. I actually want to redefine it. Because it can't be some elite, rarefied class. That way just spells authoritarianism. My liberal friends think that smart technocratic policies are enough. I don't. My good comrades, well, push them on it, and many of them would be okay with a kind of radical intellectual vanguard. I wouldn't be. I'm not exactly a liberal, and I'm not exactly a Marxist either. Though I see the appeal of both. At the end of the day, my sensibility is a little bit more anarchist than that. So how might an anarchist define the word intellectual? Intellectuals don't reveal some great truths to us. They don't lead the unwashed masses to enlightenment. They don't really give us answers. They mostly ask us questions. At least the good ones do. They help us look within ourselves, and in so doing, they expand the radical imagination. They expand what's possible. The person that helps you do that, they might be a professor, and yes, many academics are indeed intellectuals, but certainly not all academics are intellectuals. And it's also true that not all intellectuals are academics. Many of the great ones are artists and activists, journalists, even quote-unquote regular working people. We've got to appreciate that, the ordinary intellectuals, the everyday intellectuals, the popular intelligence, even when it's imperfect. But I'm no everyman, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to lie to you. 
I don't even smoke, even though the title of this podcast refers to a Canadian slang term for cigarette. It's just a joke. In truth, I'm a PhD student. Look at me. You'll see me reading the New York Review books, listening to old jazz records, and sometimes even dressed like a full-scale dandy. A certain kind of person would think of me as some effete snob. They're not entirely wrong. But I'll also talk their ear off about sports, video games, pro wrestling, shitty movies, and even blowhard comedians. You know, that kind of stuff can be intellectual too, in its own way. What was I talking about again? Right, I was trying to define intellectual. This is going to be a lot harder than I thought. Maybe I'll just offer you this. To quote the Supreme Court justice who tried to define pornography, I know it when I see it. That's about the best I can do, and I'll stop there. That's my take. Thought you wanted to know. Of course, I'm not the only person on this team, but still, everything you hear will be filtered through me one way or another. So, thought you wanted to meet the filter. And each week, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to intellectuals. It's really that simple. We'll discuss politics, arts, culture, ideas. Sometimes they'll be the usual suspects, that authoritative old white Harvard professor. But genuine diversity is important here, so other times you'll hear from the young African-American scholar trying to upend orthodoxy, or an activist, even a crass podcaster or Twitch streamer. Who knows where this will take me? I really don't know, and I want you to help me. We're going to go out there and find out exciting intellectual life wherever it's happening, might even be your bartender. Honestly, I will interview your bartender. Send them my way. The people on the show don't have to be perfect. In fact, some of them will be very imperfect, but every guest on the show will share one common feature. One way or another, they're an intellectual. Whatever that means, I guess we'll figure it out together. This week, I speak to critical educational scholar and dissident Henry Giroux. He celebrates intellectuals within the academy who maintain their connection to ordinary people. These academics are true public intellectuals. But first, we look at populism and anti-populism. It's one of the most intense divides in contemporary politics. You can basically describe it like this. Do we like people or do we hate them? This crosses the ideological divide and really there's an emerging bipartisan consensus that the people just suck. They are irredeemably stupid, racist, conspiratorial reactionaries, and they can't be saved. But Thomas Frank doesn't agree. He thinks that their lived experiences and material interests account for something. And if you appeal directly to that, you can win them over to left politics. All that and more after the break. Stay tuned. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network, and all this summer we're playing some highlights from our archives. But, like Jay said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. It's a crisp autumn day in my neighborhood, a bustling part of downtown Toronto. It's Halloween. The trick-or-treaters aren't really out, though, not many of them, because there is a global pandemic. But the buskers are out. One of them is dressed like a kangaroo.
I'm here to meet a kind of intellectual, a quite unusual and very imperfect one. His name is Daniel. He's in his mid-50s, maybe early 60s. He looks like an old folk singer and he's wearing a flat cap. He's got a bunch of books for sale. They're all laid out on a table or stacked together in a shopping cart. This is his bookstore. He used to have a real brick and mortar one, not anymore. I had one called The Second Look, I had one called Old Books, I had one called uh, 703, I had one called uh, Books, and uh, I have this one. (laughs) (laughs) This one I actually called it Pigeon Shit Books for a while because (laughs) the pigeons used to roost right above me and shit on top of the books uh, because people were feeding the pigeons here all the time and they were all homing pigeons, right? And so, and because I was selling my books for pigeon shit prices, it sounded like pigeon shit books should be a good name for the place. <laughs> I bought two books from him. One was about socialism, and another was from some political scientist who studies elites. Cost me about 10 bucks. Not so bad. When I told him I was a student, he started quoting Francis Bacon at me. Remember what uh, Francis Bacon said in his essay on study? And I, I would recommend any professor reread this, uh, the essays of Francis Bacon, but in his essay on study, he says, reading maketh a full man, conference a ready man, and writing an exact man. So in other words, reading gives you content, and then... The thing about Daniel's bookstore, it's like a lineup of literary and philosophical greats. Pretty highbrow stuff. And he's got a lot of what you might call the canon. Today, I see a lot of Russian classics, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky. There's also a few books by radicals and dissidents. He's got some Noam Chomsky here. It's an interesting collection. His rule, he only sells books that he's read or books that he'd like to read. He tells me 99% of the books that are published, he'd never sell them. If they're not about something authentic, if it's just about, oh, I want to make some money, I'm a, I'm a great writer, I want to make some money, and they write some sort of romance novel or a book about vampires for kids or, or like, you know, like uh, creepy serial killer crap, you'll notice I don't have any of that kind of material here, mm-hmm. and I never will, because uh, to me those aren't books, Th- those are kindling for my camping trips. <laughs> what kind of books do you, you mentioned books that you like or you read or that you would like to read. So what, okay, the, what I, kind of books do you like to read that you like to sell? If, if I had the time, I would be reading the great books, like great literature, mm-hmm. uh, all of the classics and certainly all of the great poets and, um, you know, translated from the Latin or Greek and and if you had the time, learn some second languages and read them in Latin and Greek. But certainly read the great books, like read all of the Shakespeare, uh, read, read uh, Don Quixote, read Dante, read Milton, read, read all the Jane Austens, like read, read, read all the great authors, read all the Dostoevsky's, of course. Like, uh, but, you know, Gogol, like there, there's hundreds and hundreds of great authors. So why would you waste your time reading crap right like in your entire life you probably you probably only have time to read let's say 5,000 books in your entire life right yeah and that's if you're an if you're an avid reader Mm -hmm. you probably only have time to remember what Francis Bacon said some books are meant to be tasted some to be chewed and some very few to be thoroughly digested most of my real books are not here I have to pay them in stories and my books 
my real books uh, enjoy climate-controlled housing. Yeah, yeah, which is climate-controlled, air-conditioned, and heated if they want to be warm, and so that my books won't get damaged. Ironically, they, they have a much better lifestyle than I have. <laughs> I was found this morning sleeping on a park bench, like um, a block away from here. Despite not having a place to stay, Daniel loves his books. So he pays good money to put them in storage. Says it costs about a thousand bucks. That's almost enough for rent. He used to make ends meet. He'd actually sleep in his old stores, surrounded by the books. But in 2008, it all went to shit. Now the rent is too high, he just can't get back in the bookstore game. So the books languish in storage. And if you're wondering, no, he can't stay in the storage locker. There are rules against that. But he goes there to repack his shopping cart, and then he heads back down to Bloor Street. He's here every day, morning till night, and he's been here for years, total fixture in the neighborhood. He tells me that the intellectuals in the neighborhood know him. They come to him, they ask him for books. And there are a few in this neighborhood because we're right by the University of Toronto. So you mentioned the intellectuals see your books, and, and our, my show is about intellectuals. So what is an intellectual to you? I already mentioned the betrayal of the intellectuals. Yeah, what is that? Okay, to me, I, I don't believe in anti-intellectualism, but I, in fact, I think it's a deadly thing. But I also do not believe in overestimating intellectuals. I think that there's a difference between intelligence and education. And a lot of people who think that they, they are intellectuals are just uh, educated beyond their capacity. You know, where like it's like what do you call it, the Peter Principle? They rise to the level of their own incompetence. Where like uh, a PhD is piled higher and deeper. Like first you have your BS, then you have your MS. First you have your bullshit, then you have a master of shit, then you have your piled higher and deeper. Like uh, I mean, that's an average. That's an average intellectual. Now, not all of them. Some yeah. intellectuals are genuine intellectuals, meaning to say that they can think on their feet and uh, respond to ideas that confront them and challenge their perceptions. And but, but the thing is, Daniel's got himself piled up in some shit too. Remember what I said about how some people on the show are going to be imperfect? Well, sometimes very imperfect. So this, this is what's so amazing about what's going to happen right now with the Great Awakening is that the little guys are going to be helped. Mm-hmm. I sure hope so. Well, it's going to happen. It's going to happen right in front of your eyes. I sure hope so. Things yeah. are going to get a lot better very soon. Mm. Very soon. Why do you think so? Oh, because uh, the, for the first time in 6,000 years, the bad guys are losing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Really? Yeah, an ancient death cult is going down. I hope so. Well, I it's absolutely so. true. Like, I mean, read your cue. <laughs> like, just go back and read the first 100 posts of cue that started on October 28th, 2017. At this point... I think most journalists would have canned the interview, or they would have left the inconvenient cue part out, or alternatively, they would have just leaned into it to attack Daniel. None of those options struck me as right. I think there's something weird and interesting about a person who is genuinely curious and well-read ending up believing in cue. That's part of this story. It's not the neat little narrative I expected, and frankly, I'm not really sure what to make of it. But that's okay, because... This show isn't just some trite story about romanticizing the everyman. People do end up believing wild things, and so that's something we've got to figure out on darts and letters. What do people actually believe, and why? I think it would be wrong to simply dismiss or pathologize Daniel. I mean, 
I will dismiss Q, but there's still a lot to learn from imperfect intellectuals like Daniel in all their complexity. So I change the subject from Q and I ask him about the books that he's got here. Um, so do people, I feel like people don't read the greats anymore, like the Dostoevsky's as, as much. people don't have time. They, yeah. they have time. Okay, I didn't invent this expression, but it's called time famine. They don't have enough time in their life, right? They, they live frenzied, chaotic lives. They come home from whatever they have to do. And they turn on the boob tube and uh, listen to the fake news. And that's why they're so mis... But you know what? Despite all that, because people have... Uh, 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 Give me a spark of nature's fire. That's all I learn and I desire. Do you remember those lines from the epistle to John LaPrague no. by uh, Robbie Burns? Uh. He goes, I am a poet in a sense, but just a rhymer like by chance. What's all you learning in your schools if honest nature made you fools? What sayers your grammars? You'd better take enough spades and shoals and napping hammers. A set of dull, conceited asses confuse their brains in college classes and sin they think to climb Parnassus by Dinta Greek. <laughs> that's, from, that's from the lines from the epistles to John LaPrague by Robbie Burns, right? The people's poet. Give me a spark of nature's fire. That's all the learning I desire. Daniel says he wants to open up another bookstore soon, if the rents go down. But for now, he's on Bloor Street, and he still doesn't have a place to call home. If you talk to him, he'll quote you poetry, and he'll discuss the greats just about as intelligently as anyone you've ever met. But he might also tell you that he hopes Q will make things better for him. There's a kind of person who thinks Daniel's too far gone. And that's what people are like, generally. They're confused, they're conspiratorial, they're lost. Forget them. Let's just sidestep all that nonsense. But that's not how the populists thought. They were a political party at the turn of the century, and they appealed to people's material interests. And they were trying to educate them so that they could see the true causes of their oppression. That cause? The ruling class. The populists were real lowercase d Democrats, and Thomas Frank tells us the ruling class at the time, they hated the populists. Mob rule is what they'll say. There's this long-running strain in American political thought that mistrusts democracy. This goes all the way back to the founders. At some point, they transferred that entire argument. They sort of swapped out the word democracy and swapped in the word populism. So the problems with democracy, which the founding fathers dreaded and, and deplored, those became the problems with populism at some point in the 1890s and sort of uh, accelerating ever since. Populism represents mob rule. It represents demagoguery. Uh, it's the power of a demagogue over the ignorant masses. It's the whole problem of the lower orders imagining that they can run the show, which is what the founding fathers thought was the great danger of democracy. And now that's said to be the great danger of populism. It's supposed to be anti-intellectual because the populace, of course, uh, were against the gold standard. It's supposed to be superstitious, conspiracy-minded. And then the one that was sort of invented in our own time, 
or, or I should say in the 1950s, is that populism is anti-Semitic, xenophobic, and racist. None of this actually describes the original movement, the people that coined the word populism. None of this describes them, even though these attacks were thrown at them all the time. None of this actually describes them or you know what they were doing. By the way, there is a kind of theoretical backdrop for this that I found when I was doing this research that was absolutely fascinating to me. Oh, here I've got it. So I've got it right next to, uh, here's the biography of Jerry Simpson, sockless Jerry Simpson, the Kansas populist. Mm-hmm. I, got, I got this in a junk store in Wichita <laughs> or something. And then here is, this is the book that sort of underpins modern day anti-populism, The Crowd by uh, Gustave yes. Le Bon, French. It came out in 1896 in English. The first crowd psychologist, French sort of thinker. And uh, Le Bon hated democracy and was desperately afraid of the idea of working class people getting together in groups. And he said that they behave like an animal, they become subhuman, they become the plaything of whoever the strong orator Mm. is. It's a bizarre kind of like crowd psychology. It's like a kind of collective hypnosis or something that that people are under. One of the guys who who really liked this book was uh, William Allen White, who was a newspaper man in Kansas and who hated populism. In fact, he wrote the original essay, What's the Matter with Kansas, in 1896. Uh, That was one of the sort of ultimate anti-populist statements. (laughs) But he later wrote a novella about populism, about its rise and fall. There's only a handful of fictional treatments of populism, and most of them are really bad. I mean, really, I mean, they're written in the 1890s. They're very sentimental. They're very, you know, noble. Even today, like, I haven't read The Crowd, but you know when I, when you watch like The Simpsons, anytime any group of, uh, I guess, Simpsonians gets together, there's pitchforks, there's like, it (laughs) descends into complete irrationality, even though like, Generally, I think that shows the revolt of the masses, but it's the revolt of the masses. Yeah, (laughs) this is so um, deep in in the culture, but that's where it comes from. And it is a profoundly anti-democratic background to this stuff. Gustave Le Bon, very right wing French political theorist, did not like democracy. It's the great irony of our time that it's now been picked up and is being spread all over the place by liberals, you know, <laughs> or by people who tell us that they're liberals. Well, let's write the historical record. Let's revise what we mean by populism then. Who, who were the populists? It was a left-wing farmer labor party in the 1890s. It was the last big third-party attempt in American history. I mean, successful third-party attempt. And what I mean by successful is they weren't just, it's like not Ross Perot who just runs for president all by himself. This was a real party that was challenging the other two parties all over the country for positions up and down the ballot and very often winning. Now, they didn't last long. They only, their, their heyday was about six or seven years, but they got their start in Kansas in the year 1890, where they came out of nowhere and challenged the local Republican Party in the state legislature elections and did extremely well. They at first called themselves the People's Party, but they realized 
right away that that was not a very catchy phrase and they needed a better name. And one day in 1891, a bunch of these guys sitting on a train between Kansas City and Topeka and trying to come up with a new name for the party or a nickname for the party. And they came up with the word populist. And that's literally where it comes from. We know this because there are a whole series of newspaper articles about it. it it's kind of legendary. It's, it, you know, you have to dig into the literature, but I was able to find, um, sort of newspaper stories about it. It was fascinating. Oh, this is amazing in your book and on, on your website as well, some of the cartoons. But I remember seeing, you know, the uncouth mob with like wretched clothes, hayseed uh, uncouth, in their hair. Uncouth is, is exactly the word, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the hayseeds. And, you know, yeah, and that gets recycled in our own time to the deplorables. Yeah, exactly. But one thing that struck me that may be a surprise to people who have sort of anti-populist sentiments is it was in some sense an educational as well as political movement. Like at its core, it had no anti-intellectual tinge really at all. It had an anti-elite tinge, right? Yeah, very strong anti-elite tinge and also anti-orthodoxy. These were, after all, these were people that were questioning received wisdom on all sorts of things. I should mention populism came out of a farmer's movement. It, it was called the Farmers Alliance. It's very similar to what we call the Farmers Union today, but it was a huge movement. Farmers were an enormous, were more than 50% of the population at the time. This was a movement with millions and millions and millions of members, very dedicated members, really committed. And these were by and large uneducated people uh, who had not gone to high school, uh, had not gone to college. They thought of themselves as in part an educational movement, and they would send uh, speakers all around the country, especially to these rural areas. And these are highly educated people who would talk to the farmers about economics, about the gold standard, about uh, the political system, about uh, you know how they happen to be so screwed. They were actually obsessed with this, with learning, with ideas, with uh, reading. And if you go back, and they had newspapers everywhere. So every small town in Kansas in the 1890s would have had a Republican paper and a populist paper, and they would fight like cats and dogs, you know? <laughs> just constantly. And um, these newspapers would routinely advertise books and cheap pamphlets. It was a movement of cheap pamphlets. Uh, and when you go to do the research in the like state archives in Topeka or whatever, you come across these populist pamphlets, you know, enormous numbers of them trying to explain difficult economic questions to farmers. They were in love with ideas, with learning. It's And it is, it is absolutely... Ironic is not the word, and tragic is not the word. It's absolutely perverse that the name of their movement has come to be associated with stupidity and anti-intellectualism. And for that, we have uh, Richard Hofstadter, the historian, to thank. One uh, thing that really struck out to me was the Little Blue Book series. I'm wondering if you can tell us about that. That was... Um came right at the end of your book, but yes. you've got one. It's amazing. I've got, yes, I've got a bunch of these. So this is another sort of legendary Kansas thing. It was uh, before the paperback revolution, right after World War I and into the 1920s, there was a famous socialist newspaper in Girard, Kansas, which is always is astonishing to people that there was a socialist newspaper in Kansas, but it was more than that. It had an enormous circulation. 
in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, and it, it was a weekly newspaper and they would mail it out from this tiny town. They had to like build a really big post office for this town. They, you know, they had to build a new freight line into the town in order to mail this thing out. It was a socialist paper, but it had started life as a populist paper. And then when populism died after the 1896 election, the owner of it switched over to the socialist party and it became this big deal as a socialist paper. Anyhow, then socialism itself died uh, after World War I. By then, the owner of it was this guy called um, Emmanuel Haldeman Julius. And he owned the newspaper at that point. And he said, well, what am I going to do? I've got this huge printing press, but nobody wants to read the socialist newspaper anymore. And he basically retrieved from history's dustbin the, the old populist idea of pamphlets, of pamphlets about highbrow um, thought, scholarship and economics and political th thought and religious thought also, and uh, expressing it in a way that could be easily understood by anyone and publishing it in pamphlet form. In, where the pamphlets are so cheap, they were five cents a piece. You would mail this guy a dollar bill and he would send you a box of 20 of them by the U.S. mail. And it was an extraordinary success. It was a huge success. Hobos would pass them around. Day workers would, they were, they were, the the size that they were was designed to fit in your uh, an overalls pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so you could, uh, you know, carry them around with you. Farmers would read them. You'd see them in hospitals. You'd see them in prisons. What are we talking about? Like Aristotle, Dostoevsky, like the greats? Uh, yeah, well, they, you can look up who they, they – I have here an index. Uh, this is one of their indexes of all the pamphlets that they published, uh, you know, organized by topic. There were th literally thousands of titles. But uh, yeah, there would be, um, so uh, uh, Dostoevsky, Shakespeare, um, you know, a lot of uh, sort of the great literary figures, Goethe, uh, there's Schopenhauer is in there, Kierkegaard, all this sort of thing. But then also a lot of self-help books, how to teach yourself how to do th this, that, or the other, including really uh, weird ones like how to fly an airplane, <laughs> you know, how to, you know, some really, really strange ones, how to make your own cosmetics, very interesting things. This is the populist heritage, in my opinion, what this guy was doing. It's not anti-intellectual, but it is anti the sort of monopoly and the, and the, the author, or I'm sorry, the uh, Haldeman Julius, the guy behind the little blue book said this mm. all the time. We are all about breaking down the snob culture that keeps ideas out of your hands and that doesn't let you, the working class citizen, read these wonderful novels or think that they're except that, you know, that you have to buy the Harvard 12 foot shelf of books or whatever the hell it is. This is exactly the opposite. The idea is to make it accessible to anyone. And astonishingly, it was a huge success. Why does it matter to you and to our broader politics? Because I get the sense that you're not, you know that you're not going to redefine the word back to its original sense. Yeah. So why does going back to the populace of the turn of the century matter? Because as we have redefined the word, we've also turned our backs on the populist tradition itself, which is, and let me define it real quickly for you. If you take your definition from the populist movement, it is a mass movement of working class people from all different ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds that is aimed at 
economic democracy. So it's a movement specific, mass specifically a mass movement, specifically of working class people, specifically non-racist and um, about focused on economic issues. And we had a long tradition of that in American life. But today, you know, as I look around me at what liberalism is, especially after this election, it's as though liberals don't know that past even exists. They don't know about the labor movement in the 1930s. They don't know that Martin Luther King and his colleagues were trying to build a poor people's campaign. They don't know about this whole, that the push for economic democracy was what defined the left in this country. And it's not a coincidence that we have lost sight of that at the very same time that we have insisted on misunderstanding populism. Second of all, I by myself am not going to win this war. I'm not going to make people start using the word populism correctly again. That's simply not going to happen. However, I can call attention to the whole sort of ideological package that is smuggled in with the way the word is used today. Okay, by which I mean all of the anti-populist contempt for working class movements, all of the contempt for ordinary people. That I can do. I want to kind of travel through time real quick, but let's like close the door on the turn of the century populists um, or close the chapter there. What what happened to the populists? So it's actually a really fascinating story. And this is makes up a lot of the, the very first chapter of the book or second chapter, I forget. The populists were growing as a national party, challenging the Republicans and the Democrats. And then the economy goes into a depression in 1894, and it's real bad. And it looks like populism is on the rise. It looks like this is the coming movement. What happens instead is in 1896, presidential election year, the Democratic Party gets together at their, at their convention and uh, basically steals one of populism's biggest issues, which is the gold standard. Populism wanted to take the U.S. off the gold standard. The Democrats met in their convention and nominated this guy, William Jennings Bryan. Nobody would ever heard of him before, 36 years old, one-term congressman from Nebraska, he had given a fantastic speech denouncing the gold standard. And this is known as the cross of gold speech, just caused shock and alarm. And he says, um, you know, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor, this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon this cross of gold, meaning the gold standard. Brilliant metaphor. And just bowled over the audience. And that's not the only good line in the speech. It's a famous, famous, famous speech all about, you know, the working class and there. And it's basically when the Democratic Party becomes the party of the left in our two-party system is this moment, the Brian speech. And um, this causes shock and alarm and consternation for the East Coast elite in America. And next thing you know, the populists get together for their convention and they, a lot of them know Brian personally because he's from Nebraska. And they say, well, look, he's just swiped our main issue. We have all these other issues. Populism had a whole bunch of reform ideas. And Brian was not with them on these other reform ideas, but he was with them on this big one. And so um, the populists endorsed him also and said, well, we'll get on board the Brian train and maybe we'll ride that to some kind of power in Washington. And uh, they nominate him also. So it's two parties against one. <laughs> and the Republicans and the uh, the sort of elite of America go absolutely berserk in this kind of 
orchestrated hysteria. And I try to document the hysteria in the book because it's really quite something. And that's where all the political cartoons come from, these car amazing cartoons denouncing Brian in the most outrageous terms. But it's all the stuff we talked about at the start. They, Brian was, uh, the, was a demagogue. Brian represented mob rule. Brian was anti-intellectual. Brian was leading the uncouth and the unfit and the hayseeds. It was an uprising of the lower orders. It was the class war. And they had to put it down, right? They had to suppress the class war. And the one word that they used to describe Brianism was populism. Okay, and this is where our modern definition of the word comes from. It doesn't come from the populist movement itself. It comes from these extremely conservative East Coast elites, uh, you know, social Darwinists, believers in the gold standard, orthodox, very conservative economists, this kind of thing. This is where our definition of populism comes from. But the irony is that most of what they wanted, the so-called cranks of the day, they got it. Yeah, they, they got Yeah. Now, they died after this. So Brian lost. The Republicans outspent him and beat him in one of the most famous, well-organized campaigns of all time. And they, they beat him. And after that, the populists basically fell to fighting with one another. There's all this sort of infighting. You know, they were very angry about, one, uh, you know, about having compromised. And, you know how these things go. And they, they basically disappeared as a party after that. But the things that they demanded, their list of demands, if you go back and look at them, every single one was achieved. So we did get off the gold standard. 1933, they wanted to nationalize the railroads. We never did that, but we did regulate them. They wanted this sort of war on monopolies. We did that. We've backed off that again now, but we wanted, they did that. We got the income tax. We got federal farm programs. We got votes for women. We got the direct election of U.S. senators. Everything on their list. Uh, the, they wanted the secret ballot. We got that. Everything on their list uh, has been achieved almost. We're not – I mean, look, this country made incredible strides towards economic democracy in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. But since then, we've been sliding backward. And it's now – that I mean, you, you, you want to talk about the relevance of populism for today. We're in a world very similar to where they were in the 1890s, where um, income inequality is grotesque. Concentration of wealth at the top is extraordinary. Uh, it's probably worse – today than it was then there's it's difficult to measure because they didn't nobody had to pay income tax so we don't really know what the, what it was like back then but by what we have going on what we have it's worse today monopolies are extraordinarily powerful again today uh, more so than ever before i think silicon valley puts uh the uh, you know john d rockefeller to shame and political corruption I mean, it's legalized bribery in this country. It's everything they complained about is back. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask you about more was the role of academia. And I'm just fast forwarding through lots of history here. So you, your book goes through these different sort of populist moments, FDR and the New Deal. But then there's this kind of incredible inflection point that's, that's almost a bit jarring because you talk about kind of how populism is everywhere in intellectual culture, in political culture, with in the 30s. And then in the 50s, the academy steps in and Hofstadter steps in. Wait, the, the sort of populist attitudes were widespread in academia in the 30s and 40s. It's academia itself took a huge U-turn, by the way. Academia took a, a huge turn to the right. 
Mm-hmm. Um, th- this is the, the famous consensus scholars in the 1950s who decided that that America America's history was just one long history of everybody agreeing with everybody else. You, you know, you look around today, everybody deploring partisanship and all this <laughs> crap. Before the 1950s, everybody thought partisanship was normal. <laughs> it's only in the 1950s that you have all of these historians saying Americans have never disagreed with each other over anything serious, over anything important. <laughs> Yeah, and, and there's a little bit of disagreement amongst elites, but there's also a sense of there needing to be an affinity of the elites. Exactly. So that's a critical phrase. And that is, uh, you know, I didn't make that up. That's a quote from a guy called Edward Schills, a very uh, 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 influential sociologist at the University of Chicago, where I actually, where I went also, by the way. I mean, I was a graduate student there. He was a professor. That's slightly different. <laughs> but uh, he was one of the, the most influential of this group of scholars. That's sort of their, their guiding theme is that what you want, uh, and this is where their, their whole redefinition of populism comes from. Hofstadter, the, the man who did redefine it, was talking about populism, the movement in the 1890s, but he got it profoundly wrong. He basically took that definition that you and I have been talking about, the anti-populist definition, and applied it to populism as though it were correct. And his fellow historians were like, no way. I mean, that's just completely wrong. And it's like refuted him utterly and crushingly. But it didn't matter. His theory of populism caught on. He's like, so we, you know, we call any working class movement that is authoritarian and and, uh, paranoid and um, xenophobic and bigoted is populist. That's what populism is. And that caught on in a huge way. Uh, and he won the Pulitzer Prize, and he was the most celebrated historian of his time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why did it catch on? Because it's enormously flattering to this generation of intellectuals. It says what you need to get to achieve reform, what you need to win the Cold War with Russia, what you need to manage an economy is not mass movements of working class people. It's not organizations of farmers and labor unions and stuff like that. What you need is us. What you need is people with PhDs or MBAs or other advanced degrees sitting around a big table in Washington and coming to an agreement, coming to consensus with one another. And here, Gordon, is where we enter the really tragic part of this story. That idea, it's taken quite a while, but that idea has utterly conquered the Democratic Party to like our undying shame they're lost. Contempt. They they, the they understand themselves as this party of technocrats. And it's like, look, this is a democracy. You can sit around and denounce democracy all you want, but that's not going to get you to first base. You have to get out there and actually <laughs> win the vote. You have to build the movement. And they've lost that. They've lost sight of that. There's a kind of dynamic of like, and I, to a certain extent, I understand it, though I disagree with it, of like the anti-racist left, especially kind of the MSNBC left, the the folks that um, I think rightfully point out that there's a lot of racism out there and then and they and a lot of these racists vote for Trump. And so they feel like they have to be anti-populist, like blaming the entire country for white supremacy and doing what you call kind of the politics of scolding. So how has this part of the left become anti-populist? How did that happen? I think that's part of a long-term transition that began in the late 60s when liberalism turned against the people. Why? Because they thought that the people were responsible for the Vietnam War. They specifically thought the white working class was responsible for the Vietnam War, which was 
you know, one of the most like, you know, fucked up <laughs> understandings like that's ever swept over an intellectual elite of a country, but that's what they thought. Uh, in fact, it was they themselves who were responsible for the Vietnam War, the sort of, you know, um, uh, what's his name, Robert McNamara. I mean, the Vietnam War was dreamed up by a bunch of political scientists from Harvard, basically. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, the expert elite. Uh, But the intellectual class of this country by 1969, 1970, didn't feel like they, you know, they were all so fucking enlightened and shit. It pisses me off. And there were a lot, of, there were a lot of unions that supported, um, Lyndon Johnson, mm -hmm. and uh, they just basically decided that the Vietnam War was the white working class, and that the white working class was, as Hofstadter said, was inherently fascist, and uh, working class movements were authoritarian and were dangerous, and what the Democratic Party had to identify itself with were these highly educated kids coming, you know, so enlightened coming off the college campuses, so kids like Bill Clinton, you know, and Hillary, who, you know, were in these anti-war demonstrations. And that's, you know, and that's, that's where this whole big transition begins. And um, it is a colossal mistake. Henry Giroux is a dissident educational scholar who pioneered something called critical pedagogy. The goals of critical pedagogy are emancipation. Its targets are racism, sexism, capitalism, and really any form of oppression. Its methods are through raising the public consciousness. It's really an educational project, not a detailed political plan. That's why the public intellectual is so important to critical pedagogy. And that's why Henry Giroux is one of Canada's foremost public intellectuals. I think the public intellectual is somebody who bears witness, somebody who rebels against oppressive institutions. I think it's somebody who, in a sense, has a deep understanding of the problems that a society faces and uses the tools, the skills, and the knowledge that they have in many ways to address those problems without making a claim to academic territory. I think it's somebody who moves across frontiers, moves across disciplines. I think it's somebody who basically has to have a deep sense of commitment and courage to boast of the possibilities of what we might call radical intellectual work. And I think they have to write in a way that is accessible, but yet rigorous. And I think that uh, what a public intellectual should do or needs to do is precisely what the term suggests, to combine the gifts that they have as an intellectual to in some way work at the frontiers of the imagination, to inspire people, to hold power accountable and to work to create those public spaces where ideas matter. I mean, you know, you live now at a time when knowledge and questions of consciousness and the question of the intellect and questions of ideas and questions of persuasion and pedagogy are probably more important than at any other time in our lifetime, to say the least. I mean, we're in the midst of a new kind of social formation in which questions of politics, questions of power, cultural institutions and everyday life have more power than we've ever seen before in, in terms of shaping identities, in terms of shaping values, and in terms of, in some way, allowing people to have some sense of who they are, how they relate to others, and what the world is about. And I, and I think that when you look at a place like the United States, which is in this deep sense of, of systemic ignorance, that's not just about politics and the economic and uh, narrow political sense, 
that's also about the emergence of a collective consciousness that lacks the educational insights to be able to assume a sense of collective agency. Richard Russell once said something I loved. He said that the three passions in his life was the longing for love, the search for knowledge, and a deep understanding and commitment to making society a better place. That's a metric I like for thinking about what it means to be a public intellectual. When I think of public intellectuals, I do think of people like Bertrand Russell. I think of John Dewey. I think of Noam Chomsky. I think of you. I also see that a lot of my colleagues and peers within academia are not exactly all sharing those values, that things are quite narrow, things are quite uh, publish or perish, things are very specialized. What are the kind of structural and cultural constraints that you're seeing within the academy itself that's making it difficult to be a public intellectual? University has basically become a corporation. You have this managerial class running these institutions that are really nothing more than accountants, in my mind. And they're really concerned about the bottom line. And they're very fearful about faculty who are raising important questions. And at the same time, they're limiting the conditions that would provide an opportunity for free speech and academic freedom that would enable academics to work within an atmosphere in which they wouldn't have to be fearful. I mean, 75% of all faculty, as you know, in the United States are now temporary workers. They're on contracts. You know, they work from year to year, maybe two or three year contracts. They're underpaid. They're under enormous pressure. They have too many classes. That doesn't give you a lot of room to be a public intellectual in the sense that it doesn't give you a lot of room to basically do anything other than prepare for your classes. The other side of this is one wants to know where were the tenured intellectuals who are fighting against this? You know, I mean, where have they come together and been able to say, oh, gee, yes, this is terrible, but aren't I lucky? No, it isn't a matter of you're being lucky. It's a matter of what are you doing not to become complicitous with relations of power that produce a culture of fear and powerlessness for 75% of your colleagues. And it seems to me that we have an obligation to let the public know that what we do is crucial to what it means to live in a democracy. So that means you address social problems. You speak in multiple venues. You write for Truth Out. You write for online journals. You write for academic journals. You do as much as you can, as Stuart Hall said once, to both push at the frontiers of knowledge and to be able to always be ahead and at the cutting edge, but at the same time to be able to persuade people who are not intellectuals in the most academic sense that really have a sense that ideas matter. Well, let me ask you this. How have you carved out that space? Because I see all the public writing you're doing, all the public talks, and I wonder, was it that you had the kind of academic legitimacy first and then did the public work? I think a lot of like young scholars think of that. They think I need to get tenure. They think I need my publications. Or were the two, was the public work and the squarely scholarly work always tied together in your career? Academic legitimacy did not come easy to me. I was at Boston University in the 1970s. I was writing at that time about radical education and I lost my job. I wasn't after academic legitimacy in order to do the political work that I was doing. I saw myself first as political and then as academic. So that meant I was taking chances that didn't confine who I was or what I wrote about for the fear of being fired, because I assumed I would always be fired. In terms of my public work, my public work began 
when it became clear to me, if I was only going to write for 10 or 15 people, I wasn't going to have an impact doing anything. And so that was when, in, in, it seems to me, we had the emergence of alternative social media happening in the, eight, in the 80s, and the, particularly in the 90s. Places like Truth Out started appearing, Counterpunch, which all of a sudden gave an outlet for people like Noam Chomsky, people like myself, Chris Hedges, uh, Cornell West, Stanley Aronowitz. I mean, Stanley and I were writing for the Village Voice, but that was different. You know, these audiences were that Truth Out, Counterpunch, they have huge audiences in many ways. And so all of a sudden, there was a new public space in which to develop a public voice. At the same time, that kind of writing didn't get you tenure. Right. <laughs> right? right? Nobody looked at Truth Out and said, wow, this is fabulous. Uh, you know, you know, they, they said, oh, this is popular discourse. I mean, one of the things that I did is I created uh, a public intellectual site on Truth Out, where we were asking academics to write articles that were, you know, 15, 20 pages long, but accessible. Very few people could do it. Very few academics could do it. The articles we got and the articles I wrote, they soared to number one on the, on the list because there was an audience out there of people who didn't want to read five pages of slop. Now, remember, I'm talking about the 1970s, I'm talking about the 1980s, and I'm talking about the 1990s. At that time, basically our tenure wasn't protected, but there were more opportunities to get tenure. Now we're in a different world. And now the divide between academic work, to be honest with you, and the divide between public intellectual work seems to me to have shifted away from the academy. The public intellectuals who I tend to really admire are not academics. Jane Meyer. Mm -hmm. He's a journalist. Yeah. Ta-Nehisi Coates, Michelle uh, Alexander, right? I mean, yeah, Michelle Alexander. I mean, uh, you know, a whole range of people who are writing in ways that provide a model based right after C. Wright Mills. This is C. Wright Mills. I mean, all of a sudden, the public sphere for public intellectuals has shifted away from the academy, which tells you something about the dire state of the academy. I'm constantly asked to be on dissertation committees, the topics of which are so irrelevant <laughs> that they almost border on being magically bizarre. <laughs> I, I say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not interested in this stuff. Well, let me ask you this, because earlier you said not to blame people. Is it irresponsible that their research questions are not more publicly minded or is it uh, incentive and necessity? I think it's unfair and wrong for me to say that we shouldn't hold people responsible. We should always hold people responsible. I mean, I, for one, think you should never give up moral courage in the face of even the most intense forms of repression, that somehow you've got to take a stand because you've got to become a model for students, not just your peers, right? There's always going to be something you write that could get you in trouble. And so it seems to me that responsibility, particularly as academics, should never, ever be completely removed. I mean, the real question that has to be asked is, what can we do to enlarge the space to make it larger, to shift the balance of power? Just before I talked to you, I was talking to Thomas Frank on his book on anti-populism, when we talked a lot about the anti-populism of the academy and the essential like scolding and shaming of working class people, how do you kind of maintain that uh, connection with people and, and not fall into that trap of the kind of anti-populism? I'm sorry, but I, I like to deal with examples. Mm -hmm. I, gave, 
college one day. My father was working on his car. And I started talking about Nietzsche. He said, what? He said, wait a minute. He said, do you know how to take a, you know how to fix a carburetor? I said, no. He said, let me tell you something. He said, if you want to be stupid for the rest of your life, believe that the language you're learning in the academy is a privileged language. Mm. But if you want to be smart, he said, you'll learn that different people come into their experiences with different languages, and you have to be multilingual. You have to listen to everybody. You have to learn how to talk to, to people. You have to learn how to listen to people. And I never forgot that. It changed my life. It actually changed my life. So I, I don't occupy those privileged zones of elitism that seem to suggest that working class people are simply dumb and should be shamed. I, I think that's outrageous. And I think it's the mock of an authoritarian personality. The people I talk to the most, even in the academy, if you can believe this, uh, the staff. They, they, hey, Henry, I read your op-ed. Isn't that great? I tend to have more contact with them than I do with my academic peers. My greatest contacts are not even in the U.S. They're in Latin America. They're in they're in, they're in Europe. You know, this this I mean, the U.S. is it's like a like a dead place around intellectual activities. So it seems to me I've never lost my sense of connection and sensibility to a working class culture that is really ripe for combining passion, ideas, moral witnessing, and elements of justice without over-romanticizing all, all the other downsides of that. Mm. Yeah, that's one question I actually wanted to ask you about because I feel like there could be the charge of idealizing or over-romanticizing working-class people. I mean, people do believe in like QAnon stuff. People do believe in anti-mask stuff. I think it's it's overstated and I think it's like a convenient cudgel, but it's there. So how do we push back while and, and listen to people that have those types of views? What comes to my mind, Gordon, to be, to be honest, is to say, look, uh, simply because you're operating from a position of oppression doesn't offer any guarantees around your politics. That's a pedagogical challenge that offers opportunities because people are in the midst of forms of oppression that actually could be an important starting point for talking about why politics matters and why language matters. These are people who, in some fundamental way, the nature of their suffering lends itself to a longing for community, lends itself to a longing for a different language, a different vision. What I see on the other side is circles of certainty for which visions are dead, for which, in, for the most part, there is a, uh, an apocalyptic sense of self-assurance that seems to suggest in the, the old Fukuyama sense that, you know, history has come to an end. We're liberals. We're the best and the brightest. We can only save people. That's the end of our discourse. Well, sorry, but I like the cultural capital of working class people. I like people who dance. I like people who basically, even when they say shit that, is off the wall. You can say, hey, hold on. You know, sorry, I'm not buying that crap. What are you talking about? And they'll say, what do you mean? You know, you can engage in an argument. I mean, you you don't have to reference Foucault to talk about how power can be all invasive and domineering and also have radical possibilities. I like avenues that are filled with passion and possibility. And honesty and not sort of just like cultural signifiers of expertise and authority, but but I want to get back to like the, the comparing the kind of QAnon people with the technocratic liberals end of ideology kind of managerial class because I think what I heard in what you said and correct me if I'm wrong is that even in the people that go astray and fall for something like QAnon 
there's a longing, there's a radical imagination, there's a critical thinking that's somehow been warped, but that they are potential allies. Is, is that right? I'm not sure they're potential allies as much as they're allied. The, the alignment comes in the plunge into certainty. Mm. One is longing, it seems to me, for something that all people who are powerless are longing for, and that is a sense of agency that gives somebody dignity. The problem is that you live in an educational world in which the swindle of fulfillment often can manifest itself in ways in which some people are easily swayed more so than others. And I think that might be true for working class people who don't have the education, who are just looking for something to, to find, and all of a sudden can't identify with liberals who are speaking in a different world. They're speaking the language of Goldman Sachs. Mm. I want to ask you a little bit about this election. There's kind of like an inversion happening almost where a lot of the white working class is going to Donald Trump and there's an educational divide that's only increasing with voters and then with non-voters, like the educational divide in terms of who votes and who doesn't. How do we address that? Here's a country in the midst of a pandemic that basically bears down more heavily on people who operate from a position of powerlessness, whether we're talking about poor whites, we're talking about blacks, we're talking about poor brown people, poor people in general, with a greater acceleration and intensity for people of color. And yet, so many of those people have voted, not for Biden, but for Trump. And I think that what starts to become clear in my mind, as muddled as it may be, is that they could care less about the threat of dying from a disease than they do about not having jobs, living in towns that are landscapes of emptiness, having no dreams, no visions, not having a sense of dignity, losing themselves to opioids and drugs and so forth and so on. In other words, there is an existential malaise tied to an economic order for which their wages have been frozen for 50 years. They've been evicted from their homes. They're locked in a discourse of survival in which even the possibility of death from a disease and a lunatic who basically is doing nothing but making it worse hasn't swayed them. So what are we saying? We have to address this issue. We need a Marshall Plan to lift this country up, deal with the greatest scourge of all in the United States is economic inequality. That touches everything from the racism to the homelessness, to the evictions, to everything basically has to be wielded through that matrix. This is not to say that racism and economics uh, collapse into each other. They have different distinctives, different conjunctions. We know that, but economic inequality, wow. I mean, we're losing an entire population of white working class people because liberals don't address it. They don't want to address it because to address it is to make something clear. Capitalism sucks. It doesn't work. Privatization, deregulation, commodification is not a way to address social needs. And the pandemic proved that. And now, I mean, you have a guy running for the president on the, on the liberal side who's a centrist who basically is mouthing neoliberal uh, 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 assumptions. I mean, he, he can't even argue for universal health care. He can't even argue for free education. And we're wondering why the white working class voted for Trump? Really? 
<laughs> and now of all times, too, I think that's the thing that's so frustrating. There was a moment in the primary where, where Bernie looked to be doing really well, and then it didn't go so well. But then the pandemic came, and I think there's a hope on the left, like this is a rupture. This is a moment of potentially radical transformative change because things are falling apart. And yet we got, I mean, centrist, he might as well be a Republican. He's one of the most conservative Democrats there is. Yeah, he is. Is there any hope for the Democratic Party at this point? No, there's no hope for the Democratic Party. No, no, no. I, I think that, you know, Chomsky and others have said, oh, well, the Democratic Party is there for what they call what I, what I would call the immediacy of politics, right? You don't throw people under the bus. You promote liberal policies that will raise, of course, raise the minimum wage, improve health care, all of that. But in the end, if you're really talking about radical transformation, don't look to the Democratic Party. We need a socialist party. We need a democratic socialist party. And some people will listen to this and say, well, that's insane. Well, actually, when you look at young people and you look at the surveys taken among young people, what is it? What is the figure now? 55% of all young people claim they're democratic socialists. Yeah. The writing is on the wall and it's on the wall. It's on the wall demographically in terms of whites becoming a minority. And it's on the wall in the sense that the counter-revolution that took place against the 60s is coming to an end. It's vile, cruel, utterly scleric policies have now been revealed through the pandemic. All we need now is a political theoretical framework that makes that clear and makes it clear that it's not about simply bad governance. It's about neoliberalism. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's really the enemy here. Sorry. And that if you're on the side of neoliberalism, you're on the wrong side of the fence. When you say it's not about bad governance, you're saying when the Democrats say, like, you don't listen to science or your, your policy, you have no policy. But you're saying that there needs to be a deeper critique, that it's not just about good governance. It's about values. Education is central to politics. And I must say the left has failed here. They have failed. They have failed. They really don't understand the degree to which matters of domination, matters of oppression are not simply economic. I mean, probably the most important tools that we can deal with today are matters of persuasion, changing consciousness. So that education is not about schooling exclusively. It's also about an ecosystem, of a pedagogical ecosystem that is so powerful and so in the hands of the right that we have to develop strategies now to change a collective consciousness that would allow people to be able to breed and imagine the most radical of all alternatives, that there is one. So how do you do that? What is that public consciousness look like? How does the educator expand the radical imagination? Well, the first place to begin is to make power visible and to talk about its consequences. The second place to begin is to talk about democracy and what that really means in terms of people being able to actively participate. The third thing is to learn from history and to try to understand how movements have actually evolved that took that seriously. The fourth thing is to look at history and understand how isolated movements for all that they did, why they failed, because they couldn't align themselves and come together and basically create a thread which people could recognize how these movements in, in some way uh, had something in common. Finally, it seems to me what that would look like would be to engage in a massive educational program through the alternative media, through newspapers, schools, anything to raise the level of educational consciousness and have the left actively employed in doing that. You know, we've seen this happen. 
We saw teachers walking out of schools. We saw young people walking out of schools and protesting violence. We've seen the Black Lives Matter movement come along and all of a sudden now talk about violence as systemic and state-oriented. We've seen young people making connections across national boundaries. And all of these movements are enormously intellectual because young people are plugged into the media. Young people are plugged into a technology where they're talking about ideas. And so it seems to me there's a model there emerging that really speaks to something in the future around shift in consciousness and the spaces that can be created that make that possible. You've been writing a lot about neo-fascism lately. We haven't talked about what is the kind of right or the neo-fascist view of intellectualism. What do those ideals look like? What I call them are anti-public intellectuals. I mean, these are people who basically hate the public sphere, hate public goods, hate public welfare, uh, basically trade and hate bigotry and divisiveness. And at the same time, they're well aware of the power of ideas to change people's consciousness. I mean, these people shape policy, they shape public radio, they shape the news. They're anti-public intellectuals. They trade in ideas, but they're ideas that are anti-democratic. These are people who hate democracy. These are people who love exclusivity. And, uh, you know, these are people who love divisiveness. These are people who really believe that power is on the side of white nationalism and ultra-nationalism. These are white supremacists. And they're not just carrying flags and marching through small towns in the Midwest anymore. They're now in the form of Fox News, Tucker Carlson. Now they've recognized if they have an audience, they can say anything they want because there's no accountability in that ecosphere to hold them responsible. How are they best resisted? I think they're best resisted through huge social movements that basically in some way have two functions. One is to educate people as much as possible to be critical agents and to join those movements. And, to, and secondly, please forgive me, in the, in the name of Mario Savio, you could have stopped the machine. We, we really have to take into consideration the power of direct action. Direct action. Let's not talk about voting every four years or every two years. This is just nonsense. I mean, we don't have a chance around that kind of strategy. The real issue is not democracy equals the vote. The real issue is democracy equals outrage plus action. You know, And it seems to me that action has to be in the streets. That is not a call for violence. It's a call for nonviolence. It's a call for stopping traffic. It's a call for major strikes. It's a call for not allowing machineries, the machineries of power to operate effortlessly. And we've got to learn how to do that. And that was the first episode of Darts and Letters. We're produced by Jay Coburn and Polly Legere. Research from Addie Susnick and David Mosscrop. And I'm Gordon Caddick. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. It's a new show, so we need you to help us cook the algorithm. Hit subscribe, also review us, and tell a friend. If you like what we do, you can also support our work on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and the handle is also darts and letters. Don't like what I said? Well, tweet at me. My handle is at Gordon Caddick. We're open to ideas. We receive funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and our lead academic advisor is Professor Alan Sens at the University of British Columbia. 
Darts and Letters is made in two places, Toronto, Ontario, and Vancouver, British Columbia. Toronto is on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Vancouver is on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. This has been a production of Cited Media. We make other fine shows like Cited Podcast or Crackdown. You can find both of those and others wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>